Hey guys, and welcome to the Movement Docs Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Mike. And we're just two guys who want to help students and clinicians grow in the field of rehab. Welcome to the show. Hey guys, and welcome to episode 17 of the Movement Docs Podcast. Today, we're going to be sitting down with Dr. Cameron Marshall from Complete Concussions, and we're going to be talking about everything that you guys want to know about concussions. Dr. Marshall is a doctor of chiropractic and sports injury specialist who holds a fellowship through the Royal College of Chiropractic Sports Sciences in Canada. Dr. Marshall's primary research and clinic practice focuses on evidence-based treatment and management of concussion and post-concussion syndrome. He serves as a board member for Brain Injury Canada and is the founder, current president, and director of research at Complete Concussion Management, a global network of concussion management and rehabilitation facilities. Dr. Marshall, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you on. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. So, uh, Mike, as is tradition, I <laughs> didn't really look at the Google Docs, so why don't, you, why don't you remind me what we're talking about? I know it has something to do with concussions. Yeah, yeah, and you even said it yourself, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty much everything related to concussions. So we're going to spend some time doing a little bit of uh, background information with Dr. Marshall just to kind of get his, uh, his how he's grown and, and everything that he's done uh, with concussion in, in general. We'll talk about concussions and defined concussions, uh, maybe get into like the physiology of it just a little bit and some of the emotional things that you may see that change for a person that has a concussion. We'll talk about some stigmas and some stereotypes, maybe bust some myths um, associated with concussions. And then uh, we'll talk about complete concussion management and, uh, and the company that Dr. Marshall is a part of. And so we'll, that will kind of run from there. And as always, we may go down some rabbit holes and, and uh, veer off topic as is usual for this show. <laughs> No, I'm ready I, for the rabbit holes. I can't. I can't promise that my <laughs> Canadian pop culture is up to date, um, but I have seen Corner Gas, and I do know. <laughs> I do know they're making an animated Corner Gas show. Um, so, yeah. Well, I have not. I have. I have not heard that. I actually went to high school like ten minutes down the road from where they filmed that. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm from uh, like more kind of bush type area. Uh, but I actually went to high school out in the prairies, and uh, the school was about 10 minutes down the road from where they filmed Corn Gas. So there you go. <laughs> that's that's so awesome. The only other Canadian stuff I know is Degrassi, um, <laughs> William Shatner. <laughs> uh, what the who's the who's the dude lead singer from uh, Mike? Who am I thinking of? You know what I'm talking about? Didn't he from? Is it from Bush? Uh, no, no, no. He's 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 British. No, Nickelback, Nickelback, right? Oh, the whole band, the, the whole Nickelback band, I think is is from Vancouver. Which we're probably gonna lose some viewers over this, but I actually do kind of like Nickelback a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think they're bigger in the U.S. than they are in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then obviously curling. Winter Olympics is on. Um, we love curling. We love ice sports. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we actually have you, made. Have you have you ever curled? No. So it's a goal. I, I came. I came it's very hard. I came very close because when I was an undergrad at the University of Virginia, we had an ice rink in Charlottesville, and they did beer league curling. <laughs> and one of my friends, who was actually, he was my physics TA. That uh, he's the only reason I got through physics with a C plus. Um, but I actually ended up meeting him again at a bar at like two o'clock in the morning and we became drinking buddies throughout college. 
and uh, he competed in the the beer league curling thing. And so I was very, very tempted to go out there and, and do it. But I, I just, I don't think me on ice skates would be a good thing, mm. even though you're not on skates, but just me on ice in general would not be, <laughs> not be good. <laughs> it's, it's surprisingly difficult. Like it looks, it looks really easy. And when you do it, it's just the weight of, you know, throwing the rock the right way and stuff. I've only done it once or twice, but it's actually extremely hard. <laughs> so you, you, like when you see it on TV, you're just, you know, it like, it's, it looks like nothing, mm-hmm. but it's hard. Now, what is the, is there like, do you have to learn the, the sweeping technique or the brushing technique with the brooms? I, and, and, and I've been watching the Olympics and been paying attention to curling because the, uh, the mixed doubles was on <laughs> and Canada actually won gold in that. But I still don't understand why you sweep, when you sweep. Like, I just don't, <laughs> I, I don't understand the purpose of sweeping. Is there, is there dust on the ice? Like, are you cleaning the path? Uh, I actually think it has something to do with warming the ice. I think the friction of the broom actually warms the ice, but I don't know if that speeds it up or slows it down. So <laughs> I'm lost. Huh. Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> All I know is it's my favorite winter sport. Hmm. It's just so awesome. <laughs> and like randomly when it's on, on like ESPN in July, it just makes me so happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We so. get pretty rowdy about it too up here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, for our viewers, listeners, whatever, I guess I can't watch a podcast, but, um, for, for all of our <laughs> listeners out there who maybe aren't familiar with you, Dr. Marshall, or with, um, complete concussion management, can you give us a more of a background about yourself and kind of how you started that company? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, uh, I was always involved in sports and so I was always interested in sports injuries. Uh, when I went to university, uh, in London, Ontario at Western, uh, they, they had a program which was which basically was athletic injuries, and if you if you did well in the first year, you got into the second year program for athletic injuries. But it was all a part of uh, basically the overall kinesiology program. <laughs> but I started focusing more and more on athletic injuries, and by the time you get into your fourth year, if you get into that, they only accept I think twenty students um, to get into that program. And what they do is they pair you with a sports team. And I got paired with the men's hockey team. So I was basically the, the AT per se uh, for that team. So we traveled with them and, and, you know, did all their taping, did all their, their um, first aid stuff on the ice and also provided treatment off the ice. And so at the time, my goal was really to get into orthopedic surgery and go down that route uh, in medicine. And uh, so I was shadowing a bunch of the orthos at, at the hospital, at the university and, I was just kind of scrubbing in on every surgery I could because that's what I was really interested in is sports injuries. I really wanted to work with my hands. And um, and in talking with these guys, and, I don't, and I'm sure the landscape's a lot different in the U.S., but in Canada right now there's probably close to 70 to 100 fully trained orthopedic surgeons that don't have jobs. Wow. Yeah. So, and it's just a matter of OR time. Because the hospitals are public, they're not, they're not privately owned. Um, it, it just comes down to it's it's just government funding, right? So we have to really triage the patients that get surgery, which is why the wait times are what they are sometimes. But also those operating rooms run 24 hours a day, and there's only so many rooms to go around. So it was always just a question of uh, when you have the rooms fully booked, the hospital may have seven, eight, you know, ten orthos that are on all the time, and they don't need any extras, right? They'll have you know people on call at certain times of the day or whatever, and so. You know, in talking with these residents, they've been in school for, you know, 10, 15 years at this point, and you talk to them about the prospects, and they're like, well, I'll either have to move to the U.S. 
to try and get a job or I'll have to go to Europe or something because there's no jobs in Canada. So rather than dedicate, you know, 15 years of my life going down that Mm -hmm. path, um, uh, I started looking for alternatives and I thought, I thought kind of the AT uh, route. uh, I looked at physio um, and actually one of the guys on the team, actually two of the guys on the team, the players, their fathers were, were chiropractors. And so whenever I had a player that had a neck injury or back injury, I would always go and grab these guys, you know, to come down and kind of show me the ropes and, and, um, get them to kind of treat and show me stuff. And I'd always just ask them, you know, questions about their jobs and how they liked it and stuff. And, uh, it just seemed really, really cool because they were doing adjustments and all this, you know, cool manipulation stuff. And I was really into it. So I kind of switched gears there and applied for Cairo. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, long story short, go through the four years of Cairo. I was still interested in sports injury, so I applied for a uh, postdoctorate fellowship in sports medicine. And um, they only accept they only accept two or three students a year in Canada altogether uh, to get into this program. And so I ended up getting into it. And it's a two year, supposed to be two year, ended up taking me five. <laughs> but either. Either way, uh, I'm done now, so that's cool. Um, but anyway, you do you once you get into this program, you have to uh, you have to pick an original research topic. You have to do a thesis. You also have to do a thousand hours of uh, on-field medical coverage and um, all that stuff, kind of on the sporting field. But um, I think my topic at the time was something around um, you know vibration therapy and athletes looking at whether or not it could improve strength gains and you know things like that. Um, and and then at the time, Sidney Crosby's concussion happened. Mm. So for um, for us up here, I mean that was huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, for was, for uh, me as a Washington Capitals fan by proxy. Um, I would have to say that that was also big for us, but um, in the opposite way, because we absolutely yeah. hate the Penguins and everything that has to do with Sidney Crosby. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> um, so that injury happened, and I completely got interested in in concussions at mm. the time, and um, and we have these things called rounds presentations where they basically they give you a topic. And you have two months to go through all the literature on a particular topic and give a 45-minute to an hour presentation on it. So they give you two months to do this. And every uh, uh, Wednesday, it's a different resident's turn to go. And um, so I got an open topic, and it was kind of the month after Sidney Crosby's injury. And so I picked concussion. And, and I just dove into it. And then going through that and kind of learning all about it, I was just, like, blown away by how much we actually did know about it, how much the healthcare kind of as a whole just said, oh, we don't know a lot about it, and they kind of just blew it off. But there was so much research that was out there um, to kind of guide our management. And what was being done in, from a clinical standpoint was so far away from what the research was actually mm-hmm. showing us. You know, they say they, they say it takes 10 years or so for, you know, research topics to hit the mainstream and hit primary care. And um, so this wasn't really that surprising. But anyway, I found kind of a bit of a hole uh, in the research, and I decided just to kind of focus all my energy there. I actually did some work with uh, John Letty at the University of Buffalo looking at um, – he, he's really big in the uh, post-concussion syndrome rehabilitation using exercise uh, for rehab. That's kind of their, their claim to fame, if anyone knows John Letty and uh, Barry Willer. But 
with that, they were also doing some stuff with like cervical spine um, stuff. And as a Cairo, I was really into kind of how the cervical spine might be into these injuries and whatever. So that became my whole research thesis focus. And I started a program at my own clinic based on I was doing all this research. So I just, you know, started rehabbing concussions and putting all this stuff together to kind of create algorithms for treatment that were evidence-based and extremely <laughs> effective. Um, and within, within literally like months, I had people coming to my clinic from hours away, like two, three hours away, driving wow. to see me because some word of mouth stuff started getting around. And, and they would always ask, you know, well, you know, this is great and everything. I'm getting a lot better, but I can't drive, you know, three hours here, three hours home. You know, I'm dizzy. I hate the car and all this stuff. Um, who knows what you know where I live, you know, like, is there anybody in my hometown that does the same stuff? And I was always like, well, no, I'm kind of self-taught. Like, you know, there isn't really a lot of programs out there. And so that's kind of where complete concussion management came from. It was, you know, I'm not special, you know, I've just done my homework and it's a lot, you know, this stuff isn't covered in most PT programs. This isn't covered in most AT programs. I think AT probably gets the most extensive training on it, but it's not covered in medical schools. There was a study recently here in Canada and a couple in the U S that found that the concussion isn't even on the curriculum at most medical schools. So yeah, yeah. that's, that's ridiculous. (laughs) The majority of Canadian medical schools didn't even have concussion on the curriculum and and then there was a couple studies out of the U.S. that found similar findings. They found that there was huge deficiencies in the education of physicians in concussion. We, oh my God! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is not. This is this is a thing. This is a thing. Um, and so, you know, with that, we started. I, I just kind of thought, you know, if people just knew, you know, what to do and were able to apply it, then then people wouldn't be suffering the way that they are because you have people going through this stuff for. For, for months to months to years to decades and and there's stuff that can be done there's actually a lot that can be done for people people just don't understand the skill sets that they have like you guys as as pts as ats people don't understand that there so much skill set that you have right now as long as you know how to apply it properly can help a lot of people and it's actually insane and so with that, I started just training people. I started holding kind of mini seminars, getting people together, walking them through like all the evidence, pathophysiology into uh, biomechanics, into uh, even as far as chronic traumatic encephalopathy to be able to educate patients and kind of calm them down a little bit because the media has gone nuts on this stuff too. Professional athletes are, 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 mm-hmm. are really you know, worried about this type of stuff. And, and really the evidence on it, and we'll talk about it later, I'm sure, but it, it's really not that great. Um, so anyway, mm-hmm. doing all this stuff and, and kind of training all these, these clinics, it just kind of grew from there. And um, I think now we're, we're the largest concussion network, I think, probably in the world. Uh, and at the same time, all these clinics that are joining our network, we have clinics now opening up in, in, in the U.S., Australia, uh, UK now, um, but all the clinics are attached through this centralized database. Being of the research mind, I said, okay, well, I want to use evidence to guide the management, but at the same time, I want to be able to collect the data that's coming in to be able to then do further research and then you know get better as we go. So we're using research that gets published, uh, you know, from around the world to make our program evolve, uh, and, and we update it every single month. And then from that, we're gathering research data to be able to then um, you know, further the program even more so and be able to publish our own research. So I think right now we have one of the largest concussion databases in the world as well. So that's kind of the genesis of, of uh, my career. 
myself, my interest in this area. And um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's one of those things that right now is, is, is so hot topic, but the media is all over it and they get it wrong most of the time. And, uh, and there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And so, you know, our mission right now is just to try and provide people with accurate information. So I don't know if you guys follow my, my, um, my, my Instagram page, but you know, that's kind of what we've been trying to do with that is just try to, you know, provide people with, with good information they can use to, to in turn help patients. So we, it's, uh, it's been, it's been quite the journey. We do follow uh, complete concussion management. Um, I think today we just started following you because I didn't know that you had a separate Instagram. Um, but I was thumbing through it and I saw some like really cool stuff on like bombs testing. Like you were doing uh, the individual breakouts or I guess like individual tests for like VOR and stuff like that. Um, and it was really cool because, I mean, Mike and I got ex- exposed to that in, in, AT, in our AT program. But um, like they don't talk about they don't really talk about concussions in our PT program. And mm-hmm. this, what we did, it was very, very little. Um, mm-hmm. And so they didn't even talk about, like, going through, like, a SCAD or any sort of basic, like, um, assessment. Because mostly the, the PT setting, you're not going to really be acute unless you're you're working with a sports team. Um, mm-hmm. So, we, have, I mean, we have a little bit of exposure to it. And obviously, like, working at high schools, working at um, some universities, you know, we've seen acute concussions and, and helped manage that. But I think from the stuff that I've seen you guys post and then even, uh, some stuff at, um, one of, one of the PTs that works at the clinic I'm at now did a, uh, rotation with Innova health systems. It's like a big hospital system outside DC and they, Mm. their neurology department, their concussion department is, I guess, one of the bigger ones in the area. And they've started doing much more aggressive, um, rehab. And so the, Mm. the, I guess concussion protocols that we were exposed to in school were very much like rest based, like don't do activity, like make sure you do complete cognitive and physical rest until you're, you don't have symptoms anymore. But I think from some of the stuff that I've seen you guys post and some of the stuff I've heard from her, it seems like the pendulum might be swinging in the other direction. Like take those sunglasses off, do a little bit more cardio, you know, kind of let your symptoms guide you a little bit, but you can be more aggressive because it's not going to really make anything worse. I don't know if how accurate that is, but, um, that's just kind of what I've seen, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think I think definitely the pendulum is swinging the other way. Like you said, be, we always used to, and even when I was going through, I mean, I think that that, and I think even up until the Zurich consensus statement, and even after that, it was always you know rest until your symptoms go away, and then start a graduated kind of return to activity, whether it be cognitive or physical. So until that time, you know, you're supposed to be laying in bed doing nothing, and. I don't even know where dark rooms came from, but that seemed to be a thing too. You know, you, oh, you have to be in, you have to be in dark. There is literally, I don't think there is one paper you can find out there that says that you should be in in a dark room and that would benefit you. So I don't even know where that came from. But anyway, they that was that was kind of the old adage, right? That's what everyone was told to do, and then still, that's what's still happening now, right? So like I said, it takes about ten years to change primary care, but. Um, I think it was probably three or four years ago, papers started coming out challenging the whole idea of rest. And research started being done around, well, what if we were to kind of implement activity a little bit earlier? And and the guy I mentioned earlier, John Letty, um, kind of pioneered that. And it started really with post-concussion syndrome. So for those that are listening that don't really understand um, what post-concussion syndrome is, it's concussion is 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 the acute phase, right? The concussion is, and I'll go through the pathophysiology here in a bit if you want. Um, 
concussion is the acute phase. Once you kind of hit, um, depending on which definition you use, once you hit, you know, 28 days after injury, uh, that's when it becomes what's called post-concussion syndrome. And, and so that's kind of your persistent symptoms. You know, most people are going to get better pretty quickly within a few weeks. Those that don't, uh, we call PCS or post-concussion syndrome. And so uh, the guys in Buffalo started, you know, putting people on treadmills to try and see. And there's specific protocols you have to follow. Don't just throw somebody in a treadmill. Uh, <laughs> that could make them worse. <laughs> but with, with specific protocols, uh, you can try to establish, you know, what... Uh, if there is kind of a physiologic or blood flow impairment going on, and then the rehab for that is actually doing uh, a specific exercise protocol to improve that. And, and they started getting really good outcomes with exercise and exercise alone uh, in like an eight to 12 week program, you were getting, you know, 80% people getting better kind of thing. And so this became a thing like, you know, these people have been resting for, you know, months to years, let's get them active. Um, and, and the findings were actually quite astounding. And so it's kind of evolved now to trying that earlier and earlier. Well, what if we had them exercising not at, you know, six months? What if we tried exercising at one month? Hmm. Oh, wow, that's great too. Okay, what if we knock that down and start, tried it at three weeks? Oh, three weeks, beneficial. And then it kept, it kept going there. And then I think where we're at right now is, uh, is kind of the standard protocol is, is we use it, like we force people into exercise at 14 days. That's what our protocol is right now. That's what we use, and we're always on the cutting edge of this stuff. So if, if you're still having symptoms at 14 days, let's, let's stop resting, let's move, let's get, let's get going, right? And mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's going to eventually trickle even further. I think that's eventually going to get down to, you know what, you're resting for a day and then you're getting active. Um, and then on the other piece, the cognitive side of things, again, it was like no cognitive activity, avoid screens, you know, don't even look at the, you know, don't even look outside, um, you know, for fear of, of aggravating things and making it worse. And what there was a paper by Thomas, uh, it was a 2015 paper, and this is kind of what started the whole catalyst. But basically, they did a randomized control trial, and they, they looked at people who, um, or they, they split the groups, and they forced people to rest for five days, complete cognitive and physical rest, or they had people that rested for one or two days, and then were kind of gradually pushed into cognitive activity. And the group that was pushed into cognitive activity earlier had less symptom severity, uh, reduced symptom time, uh, and, and obviously a faster recovery. Hmm. So then more people started challenging that. And so now we're getting to the point now where our, our, our max rest period that we endorse at, at complete concussion management is, is maybe three to four days. Oh, wow. And if you're still, if you're still symptomatic at three to four days, let's find out what you can do. Hmm. Right. Like, yeah, sure. Take it easy for the first couple of days, but you don't have to be in a bed. You don't have to be in darkness. If you're, in, if you're laying in darkness, what happens? Well, you're going to become more sensitive to light. Hmm. One of the uh, examples I use with my patients is, is, you know, if, if you've ever been to a matinee movie or been downstairs watching TV all day or something, you come upstairs or you go outside, it's super, super bright. That's not because you're, you know, concussed or anything. It's because you've been sitting in darkness and your eyes need to adjust. But because of that, because of that injury, because of that concussion, people tend to attribute that sensitivity to the concussion injury itself. And so what do they do? They put the sunglasses on. They go back into the darkness, right? And all of that just compounds to keep that light sensitivity further and further and further. And so, you know, sure, wear the sunglasses if you need to, but start taking them off and weaning yourself off early to try and get out of that, um, that, that mentality, because it's just going to progressively get worse and worse and worse. And, you know, 
Um, so it, it just kind of all of that, all that stuff now is kind of almost getting flipped on its head a little bit. And we, we've seen the same thing with other conditions, right? This is not new. Mm-hmm. Low back pain, same thing, right? Oh, if you had low back pain, and you were just supposed to lay in bed. Well, turns out <laughs> that makes it worse, right? <laughs> uh, neck, you know, whiplash, we used to put people in cervical collars, right? Mm-hmm. Guess what? Makes it worse, <laughs> right? Movement is beneficial for everything, every condition, right? It's it's let's move, let's get moving. Um, and so I think, I think we're starting to see that flip now in, uh, in, 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 in this field. So, yeah, I, I think that's so true too. And like, um, in the clinical experience I'm at right now, they use a lot of like movement, uh, diagnoses and like, uh, therapeutic exercises as a, as a way to treat like some of these pain. So, you know, like traditionally you'd see somebody come in with a, a pain, like you mentioned, like low back pain or something like that. And maybe we just like do some joint moves and then like have them lay down and just kind of like relax. But here it's more so like, all right, so what can you do? Like you had just mentioned, let's see ways that we can get you to move um, that doesn't hurt. And then we can pattern those movements and get you stronger that way. And we were finding like really good benefits with that. So I think that's cool. It's just like echoing all the things that you're just saying right there. Yeah. The big thing, the big thing, I think instead of talking about symptoms, right, it's, it's symptom exacerbation. If you're going to be sitting around all day with a headache, that's three out of six, Right. And we use, for whatever reason, we use uh, scales from zero to six in concussion. <laughs> but if you're, if, if, if you're going to be sitting around all day with, with a headache that's three out of six, well, let's, let's see if, if that increases if you do something. Right? If, if, you're, if you have a headache that's three out of six, but you can read a book and your headache stays three out of six, are you really doing anything? Are you really doing any damage? Mm-hmm. Probably not, right? And I mean, we don't know, but I don't think that doing activity is going to go in there and undo anything. I mean, they have, you know, what they're doing now with people with severe brain injuries and strokes is they get them up moving right away. Hmm. So now all of a sudden with a mild traumatic brain injury, we take people and, and isolate them. All right. I think that whole mentality is, is, is a little bit flawed. And I think the research is now starting, starting to finally prove that. So that's awesome. It, it's, I mean, like, like I said before, it, it's very different, like, um, from what, what we learned in grad school and like what we were supposed to, I mean, we, we had some papers from, um, you know, like we read the Zerg consensus statement in school. Um, we got exposed to some of the, I guess, newer stuff within the past like 10 years. But as far as like that protocol of like getting people moving within like three, four days or whatever it is, like that's like, that's, that is not what, what is currently being taught in, in school right now. At least that's not what and it'll we take learn. time. Yeah. yeah, and it'll take time, right? And then imagine trying to get that out to the practicing clinician, right? Mm-hmm. It's one thing to get into the schools. Once you get, and then, but trying to get that actually out to the practicing clinician is a whole other story, right? Yeah. Because you're so busy and bogged down with everything else that's going on. I mean, you can't pay attention to to everything. So it's a really, really slow shift. And it's unfortunate because the patients that suffer, Right, because I still get the patients that come in six months later. You know, I've been doing everything right. I've been resting. You know, I haven't even gone to work, mm. and uh, I haven't done anything. I haven't exercised. And you're going, well, there's your problem. Yeah. Like, let's go. And and it completely shifts their mindset, and it almost empowers them in a way too. Mm. And that's that's a kind of a secondary added benefit to the whole thing is that if you can if you can find out you know, what they can do and you can give them that specific exercise protocol and you can, you can get them kind of doing stuff that they can do. 
they start to become empowered a little bit, get a little bit more motivated, and it changes their whole whole perception of things. Um, and ultimately, I think leads to getting them better. Yeah, I mean, they're they're able to take ownership of everything that's going on with them, right? So rather than being like, oh, I can't do this anymore, I can't do, can't do that, I can't do this, they're like, oh, I can do this now. I can, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to make this. You know, I'm going to own this, and I'm going to get better. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it goes well because I mean, if you, go ahead, if 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 if, if you think about what. You know, concussion mostly affects, you know, athletic populations, mostly affects, you know, young kind of teenagers, right? But putting somebody in bed for, for six months, I mean, you're going to create all sorts of other problems, right? So you're going to get social isolation, anxiety, you know, depression, and all the other psychological entities that look a lot like post-concussion syndrome. The symptoms are the same, right? Dizziness, confusion, uh, inability to concentrate. I mean, those, you get those same things in somebody who's depressed, somebody who has anxiety, and are the, is that because of concussion, the injury itself, or is that be how, you know, because of how we've managed it, mm-hmm. right? And that's the other thing. Are we creating disability <laughs> by the management practices we've had? And are the studies that are now coming out about concussion that reflect all of these things in this protracted recovery, is that because the injury itself, or is that because of our inability to manage it appropriately? I don't know if you could hear me being speechless, but um, I was. And I'm pretty sure my brain was rattling around so much that I just experienced a counter coup injury. Um, so I'm going to, I think I'm. Even that, even that. So here we go. Even that, the coup contra coup theory of behind concussion is gone. It's no longer thought to be a coup contra coup injury. But if you Google concussion, if, you were to, if anybody listening right now, if you're going to Google concussion, you're gonna see you're gonna see a coup contra coup type mechanism. You're gonna see images that depict you know the concussion bruise or some sort of contusion on the brain, and and that's actually that's that's not what it is. We're starting to learn now that it's actually a deeper white matter injury. So you have two layers of your brain tissue, right? You have the gray matter on the outside, which is all your kind of cell bodies and things like that, and then you have the deeper tissue, which is white because it's lined with myelin, and those are the axons. That's and. What they're finding now is that the injury is actually more of a deeper white matter injury than it is actually a bruising of the outer cortex of the brain. Mm-hmm. So it's not a it's not a coup contra coup in, injury anymore. It's a stretch or shear injury. And actually, what it is is because those two layers of tissues I was talking about, the gray matter and white matter, they're different densities. And so concussion is an acceleration injury. So just the brain accelerates or decelerates. That's why helmets don't protect against concussions, right? Um, I'm going to do my disclaimer, but say that you should still wear a helmet because it protects against skull <laughs> fractures. But the the helmet itself doesn't protect against concussion because it's actually the whipping motion of the head that causes the brain to accelerate or decelerate within the skull. So you could wrap the head in whatever the hell you want, but it's not actually going to stop the brain from jostling around inside it, right? And this is why helmets have fallen flat on their face. You see all these new helmet technologies coming out. Oh, this one's, you know, concussion-proof. This one's better for concussions and whatever else. And it's all just, it's all crap, really, because nothing on the outside of the head is going to be able to protect the brain on the inside of the head. But anyway, let's get back to what I was talking about. you got white matter and you got gray, you got gray matter, all right, on the brain. So the brain's accelerating, decelerating, but those two tissues, because they're different densities, they actually accelerate and decelerate at different rates. Cool. So if you can picture this, the layers actually shear across each other, and they actually pull and stretch. 
right? If you were to, um, I mean, I'm trying to think of a good analogy that people, you know, it's, it's harder to, my hands are moving, but you can't see, um, (laughs) what I'm doing, but yeah. So the two tissue layers actually move at different rates and that causes them to kind of stretch and pull apart from one another and, and kind of shear across each other. So it's not actually kind of a bruising of the outer matter of the, of the brain, but what it is, is that stretching and shearing. You want to get into pathophys right now? Yeah, let's do it. I think, yeah, I, I think this is a good time. <laughs> Melt my brain. So that's, there you go. So that's <laughs> stretching and daring, uh, shearing, sorry. Um, if you picture uh, an individual axon, right, mm-hmm. it, has, it's, it has porous kind of membrane channels on it. Uh, and it also has voltage-gated channels for ion exchange and all that stuff, right? So if you picture an axon getting stretched from one end to the other, as the injury happens, as the impact happens, the brain jiggles and moves, and these tissues get stretched, and then they come back together, and then they get, picture a plate of jello. If I was to, if you were to shake a plate of jello, the jello is going to deform up one way, and then it's going to come back, and it's going to go up the other way. But if you were to take a microscope and zoom in on what's actually happening at the cellular level, those, that, it's getting stretched apart, and then it's coming back together, and it's getting stretched apart the other way, and it's coming back together. So if you picture an individual axon getting stretched. Well, those porous channels, the membrane of the outside of that neuron gets actually pulled apart, not to the point of breaking, but it gets pulled apart where it actually creates a little bit of a gap either through the channel or in the actual porous membrane of the neuron itself. And in that split second that that opens, you have your concentration gradients, right? You have potassium that's high inside the cell, you have sodium that's high outside the cell, and you also have calcium that's high outside the cell. So as soon as that channel opens, and as soon as those ions see daylight, boom, potassium floods out, sodium floods in, calcium floods in. Well, when that ion exchange happens, what do you get? Right? You get an action potential. So that nerve fires. So basically a concussion is when the brain gets jostled, the ion exchange happens. And all of a sudden you get millions of neurons that all at the same time basically get tricked into thinking that something's just, you know, sent them a signal. They've had that action potential. So you get millions of brain cells that, boom, just get stimulated and they start firing, right? Hmm. And then what do they do? They pass their signal to the next uh, brain cells and they start firing. And you basically get this kind of electrical storm that happens inside the brain. And that might cause any number of symptoms. And might, you might see stars, for example, but you're not seeing stars you're just seeing the random discharge of, you know, ion, um, you know, firing. Uh, you might get ringing in your ears. You might go off balance. It's because there's so much activity going on in your brain. Your brain doesn't know, you know, what is level, you know, where the ground is because there's so much activity going on that it's not placing things in the right areas. Mm. So that's a very, it's a very short duration kind of electrical storm that happens. Um, and then after that, of course, you get, you get this massive drop in energy. So people actually start to get worse over the next you know, hours to days uh, because their, their ATP levels, their energy stores actually start to, to plummet way down. So that's why people actually feel worse the next you know, three, four days after the injury. So does that like initial electrical storm just like eats up all that energy or is it just like a, a like a depletion out over time kind of thing? Well, if you want to get really deep. <laughs> let's, let's go down the rabbit hole. For, just go down the rabbit hole. All right. Okay. So um, so the, the calcium, like I said, is high outside the cell. So the driving force is in. So you're going to get a little bit of calcium that's going to enter into the cell with the initial insult itself, just from the mechanical stretching of that membrane. But what you're also going to get is once that nerve fires, it releases an excitatory neurotransmitter. 
the neurotransmitter that gets released is glutamate. So glutamate does two things. One, it the other neurons pick up the glutamate and then they discharge and then they cause that next action potential. What that glutamate also does is it attaches to a receptor on the outside of the neuron called NMDA. So these NMDA receptors um, are basically conduits for calcium. So they're, 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 they're calcium channels. Once this glutamate attaches, it allows calcium to just flood into the cell. And calcium is actually the biggest problem um, with, with concussion. If you could find a way to stop calcium from getting into the cell, um, concussions would last, you know, 15 minutes type of thing. But because calcium gets into the cell, what it does, it has a high affinity for the mitochondria. And so it gets into the mitochondria and it disrupts the ability of the electron transport chain to make ATP. Right? So if you think about cell metabolism, um, mm -hmm. it can't generate ATP because the calcium disrupts that channel. So what happens is you've created an ion imbalance, right? In order to reset that ion imbalance, you require the ATP pump, remember, that pumps stuff against its concentration gradient. And because mm -hmm. it has to pump stuff against its concentration gradient, it requires ATP. So mm -hmm. what happens is after the insult, you get that initial insult, which you might see on the field as an AT, right? The guy goes down and may get up, be off balance or may, you know, kind of be confused for a bit. But then after on the sidelines, you're going, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm ready to go. Right. And they might look hundred percent fine. They might even pass their scat, right? Cause everything, everything's calmed down, but that calcium disruption has, is, is underway. Hmm. And what's going to happen is because that ATP is going to start getting used now to try and reset the ion balance that's just happened, you're going to start burning a crap load of ATP but because your mitochondria is disrupted, you're, not, you're making nine times less the ATP you were before. So you mm. end up with this massive energy mismatch. So your energy stores over the next few hours start to plummet. And you hit your peak low you know, after a week or so. So that's the thing. You kind of gradually you know, get worse and worse and worse. And you might have some player that gets hit during the game and doesn't even really realize it because the, the initial like, you know, brrr, Electrical storm may be so fast that they just go, oh, they kind of shake it off and they keep playing. They don't even realize it. But then after the game, they start getting that headache. They start feeling dizzy, nauseous, et cetera. Uh, and, that's, and that's kind of that, that decline. So there's, there's the two phases of concussion. They're called the excitatory phase, which is the obvious you know, first phase. And then there's also the second phase is called spreading depression. And that's essentially what it is. You're just dropping energy. And that was the theory behind rest. Well, it's a metabolic injury. The ATP is coming low. We should have these people resting. But for whatever weird reason, um, the science is starting to show that that's potentially detrimental. So is there some sort of like physiological mechanism with exercise and either like neurotransmitter release or something in the body that helps with that um, spreading depression stuff? Well... See, I think that, and this is why they they haven't gone as far as making people exercise in the first day. I think just as far, just to try and get even ethical approval for that, because it's so ingrained in us that we shouldn't be doing that. I think is tough, but right, we say we hit, or let's say we hit our peak low somewhere in that five to like seven day range. Um, you know, after that, we actually start improving. But exercise has all these other benefits. And increased brain-derived neurotropic factor is one of them, which actually improves uh, the healing within the brain. Um, it increases endorphins, elevates mood, um, improves energy, 
um, you know, just kind of overall physiologic state, it's a lot better for you. Um, after concussion, there's also, um, at least in animal studies, they found there's about a 50% reduction in blood flow to your brain. So not only are you, you know, you don't have enough energy through oxidative metabolism, you know, you kind of your aerobic metabolism, you have to rely on anaerobic metabolism. So you need more blood flow, right? You need more, um, more blood flow to carry that glucose to your brain in order to be able to create that ATP. But your brain actually, you know, has this twist of fate where it decides it's going to cut off the blood flow by about 50%. So now you end up with this blood flow reduction. So it's kind of this cascading storm, but one of the things that exercise and one of the theories behind it, uh, at persistent symptoms, at least in certain people, is not necessarily due to that low ATP state, but it's due to the reduction in blood flow because they found in chronic patients that blood flow abnormality, that blood flow reduction can actually linger. And so exercise improves that. It kind of regulates that. And that's, and that's one of the theories behind exercise for persistent symptoms is let's do a guided sub-symptom threshold exercise program in a specific manner to improve that gradually over time so that the brain blood flow gets restored and therefore hopefully the symptoms and everything else. And so that, that blood flow restriction, is that coming from like, is that like basal artery, vertebral arteries? Is that like at the, um, the circle of Willis itself? Like how, how is that? How does that happen? So we don't really have, it's not, it's not any particular artery. Okay. Um, there's, there's kind of four underlying physiologic mechanisms for, um, blood flow. So the thing with your brain is that it really likes blood flow to be this very consistent, right? So just picture that you want anytime something changes in your systemic circulation, your brain needs to have the same amount of blood flow that it did before. So if you're going to exercise, you want to make sure that your brain is regulating the amount of blood that's getting to your brain so that it stays the same as when you're just kind of hanging out doing nothing. Right. So there's a few things. So the first one is uh, cerebral autoregulation and that's how that's the mechanism. And they don't really, really know how this works exactly, but it's the mechanism that controls blood volume in the brain or blood flow in the brain in response to changes in systemic blood pressure. Right. So as your blood pressure changes systemically, these mechanisms regulate so that the blood flow to the brain stays the same. So if you're going to exercise, for example, or whatever, if you're stressed or whatever, uh, there's also um, uh, cerebral vascular reactivity, which is how the blood vessels in the brain respond to changes in CO2 partial pressures. So, um, for example, if you're in a hypoxic environment, right, your CO2 levels are going to climb in relation to your oxygen levels. And you're going to want to make sure that your brain is still getting the same level of oxygen. So you're going to have to dilate those blood vessels to get more blood flow through so that your brain can still be exposed to the same level of oxygen. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you, you pass out, right? So these are, these are physiologic mechanisms. And all of each of these mechanisms, there's a couple more. One is a heart rate variability. So that's your, your, um, your heart rate is in this steady – your heart rate is never you know, steady. When you breathe in – and everyone can test this right now. If you were to check your pulse and you are to breathe in – your heart rate will speed up. And when you breathe out, your heart rate will slow down. Yeah. <laughs> you guys doing I can't it right find, I can't find my pulse. I think I'm dead. <laughs> so when you breathe in, your heart rate speeds up. When you breathe out, your heart rate slows down. And that's what's called heart rate variability. And there's also – so that's controlled by your autonomic nervous system, right? So your sympathetic parasympathetics. After concussion, people tend to have a high sympathetic drive. 
And you find that they have higher, you know, morning resting heart rates they have. And what they also have is lower Mm -hmm. heart rate variability. Having a high heart rate variability is actually a sign of um, physical fitness, sign of being healthy. Um, It's a sign of uh, like, well, not really a sign of, but having a low heart rate variability can be a sign of, you know, chronic disease and things like that. But in concussion, you have a low heart rate variability. You basically have a high sympathetic drive, not enough parasympathetic. And what happens is your heart rate just stays consistently high. And so in response to physical activity, for example, like you might, these are the people that may feel, you know, better at rest. I'm almost back to normal at rest. But as soon as I, you know, get back on the ice or as soon as I get back on the football field, you know, boom, all my symptoms come back. Right. And it's because they, they're, they can't, they can't get to that next level or whatever, but that's another mechanism. Uh, there's a fourth one. Oh, um, 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 the name is escaping right now, but basically it's how your brain shunts blood around to uh, various areas of the brain. So just like when you have working muscle, you know, the blood vessels will dilate to try and drive blood and nutrients that, to that working muscle while constricting it in muscles that don't need it. Same thing happens in your brain, right? It tries to shunt blood uh, to the areas that are more active uh, and, you know, limiting it to areas that are less active. And that mechanism is also somewhat impaired after. So there's four kind of mechanisms. So there's, there's all this kind of physiologic underlying blood flow issue that's been found uh, in patients with concussion. Uh, and it may actually be due to things like even breathing rate, right? We talked about cerebral vascular reactivity and how it responds to CO2. Well, we found that people tend to have a, a higher or faster breathing rate um, with, you know, after concussion. Now, what's that going to do to your oxygen levels, your partial pressures of CO2? What's that going to do to your blood flow, right? And here's another question. Can we regulate that by controlling your breathing rate? Can we give you breathing exercises initially to try and slow that down, try and slow down your sympathetic system and, you know, kick up your parasympathetic, right? These are, these are kind of the questions that, that we're playing with. Gosh, that's so freaking cool. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear that, but that's all my blood flow is being shunted to different parts of my brain to process what you just said. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it works better when I have slides and a diagram <laughs> that I can actually show. Because I'm trying, I'm like, you guys don't see it, but I'm super animated right now. My hands are like flying, I'm drawing stuff. And, maybe maybe, but, maybe um, soon we'll upgrade to some sort of video chat where we can, we can do that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Throw it on YouTube. That'd be perfect. Make that make that YouTube grad school monies. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, this is like it's there's, I mean, you can get so deep with this, and obviously this is all I do, so I tend to go pretty deep on it. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, it's just it's so freaking cool. Like I had no, like I knew there was like some things going on with like changes in like in, in sodium potassium, but I had no idea like this this deep end dive that we just went through, like everything that's going on with blood flow. So I really appreciate you kind of explaining that. It actually makes like compared yeah. to, I guess the cursory stuff that we learned in school, like relating to like the, the ion flows and the, the changes in like the, um, like the calcium levels and everything. This makes so much more sense than what we learned in school because you've explained it like incredibly well. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who who would have thunk you'd ever use your intro physiology again, right? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> All those prereq courses. So <laughs> concentration gradients. So question, and this is kind of going back to um, 
we talked about the you know like the cute mechanisms of concussion that initial electrical storm and like the spreading depression that happens afterward so i know that um second impact syndrome is like a big concern in general and that in most of the states in in the u.s um especially at the high school level it's illegal like once there's a suspected head injury it's illegal to let that um high school player go back in in, in football at least um, mm-hmm. can you maybe talk to us about like the mechanisms of second impact syndrome and, and kind of like what we should look out for and, and why? Well, we don't completely understand second impact syndrome. Um, but essentially what, if you talk about the energy levels that I was, I was getting into, right. How your ATP levels drop. Well, there's also kind of inflammation going on at the same time and there's these blood flow reductions and all this stuff. Right. So during that recovery, um, period. And let's, let's talk animals because that's where most of the stuff has been done, right? So if you take a rat and you give it a concussion and, and monitor its ATP levels, its ATP levels will drop for a few days and then it'll start to kind of climb back up. And it'll, it'll hit its peak recovery. Like it'll get back up to its kind of, you know, quote unquote baseline, you know, ATP level within about five days. So, what researchers have tried to do with this is they looked at, you know, what's the, it's not necessarily, you know, having multiple concussions, but what's, you know, what's going on if we were to hit them at their, you know, different time points during that recovery phase. And so there's a, there's a, you know, really cool study um, that I, that I kind of quote all the time, but what they, what they did is they, they hit animals at different, you know, time points throughout this recovery. And they found that if they waited the full five days, you know, for that metabolic recovery to come back and they hit them again, they would just go through another concussion. There was no significant difference between the group that only had one concussion and the group that had two, provided they were spaced out by five days. So they, they basically said that, you know, if you have a concussion, you fully recover from a metabolic standpoint from that concussion, uh, then there's no additive or cumulative effect to that. But they also hit another group at day three, kind of right in that low point of their recovery, and they found that those animals... Um, um, had an injury that wasn't significantly different from a severe brain injury. So concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury, and they also had a group of animals that they gave severe traumatic brain injuries to. And they found that if you had two concussions that were closer together with that three-day period, that um, you would have an injury that looked identical to a severe traumatic brain injury. And 10% of the animals in, in those groups, so 10% of the animals that had two concussions spaced out by three days... And 10% of the group that just had a severe brain injury, like one good shot, uh, 10% of them died in each group, right? So having two concussions back-to-back can be just as severe as having a very traumatic brain injury where you you know, end up in a coma. Um, and essentially, if you think about where your energy levels are, right, if they're in this low state and you get hit again, well, they only drop lower, and if those energy levels drop, you know, you know, too low, what happens is the cell can't maintain its own life process. There's not enough energy left in the cell to survive. It undergoes apoptosis, kills itself off. Hmm. But there's also the other vascular mechanisms where if you have this vascular irritation that is preventing blood flow from getting up to the brain, now all of a sudden that kicks up again. You might go into like a hypoxic environment. Uh, there may be massive swelling in the brain. And eventually what happens is you get hernia, you get swelling in the brain kind of globally uh, and, and, uh, and herniation of the cerebellar tonsils through the frame and magnum putting pressure on the brain stem. So that's 
in a nutshell, kind of what happens um, in terms of the physiology, I, I don't think we're, we're 100% clear on, on how exactly it happens. But interestingly, in these studies as well, what they found is you're actually more at risk kind of, and this is in the animal group, right? So they, they did the same thing again. These, these, it was a group from Italy that does all these studies. Um, if you want to look it up, the authors are Vignasi and Signoretti um, and a few others um, with Italian names. <laughs> but this, this group, uh, the, one of the other ones they did is they did the same kind of thing, but they also, instead of just day three and day five for the second impact, they had a group that got hit at day one group that got hit at day two, group that got hit at day three, group that got hit at day four, and a group that got hit at day five. And which group do you think was the worst? I'll, I'll pose this to you guys. Hmm. Three. Yeah, I'm going to say three. There you go. <laughs> there you go. And what, what they found was that if they got hit one day apart, it, it, it was an additive or cumulative effect, but it actually wasn't as bad. If they got hit two days apart, it was worse than getting hit one day apart, but not as bad as getting hit three days apart. And if they got hit four days apart, it wasn't as bad as getting hit three days apart. So it starts to climb, right? You start to kind of get out of that rut. So in second impact syndrome, it's one thing, and we've always we've really focused about getting the player out of that game. Yeah. But who's making that return to play call? Mm-hmm. Right, and when you look at the metabolic recovery in an animal, you it's it's that five days, right? And that's where most of the studies are because you can't subject humans to this, so we don't really know when that vulnerable period is for humans, and we don't know when they're out of it. But if you were to, uh, there's a couple human studies that have found there's a there's a technology called magnetic resonance spectroscopy, and what it does is it looks at um, a molecule that isn't ATP, but it, it's correlated mm-hmm. with ATP. So when ATP drops, that molecule mm-hmm. drops as well. And they found that the recovery period for a human is is about 22 to 30 days. Whoa! So if you're to take an animal, let's say a rat, and you go five days for a rat, human, 30 days. Right? Where do you think the low point, if you were to say, okay, the low point for the rat is kind of that day two to three mark, you know, what would be the low point for a human if you were to just do it on the same scale? You're looking... It's two weeks. Yeah. Right? When are most people getting cleared to return to play? Two weeks. Right? <laughs> Let that one sink Damn. in. Damn. Let that one sink in on you. You just blew right? my so, mind. Wow. Right? So <laughs> now let's look at that. Now let's let's get into that. Right, and this is a great broach for the for the CTE topic. Hmm. So we know that so in the animal studies, you have two concussions back to back, or sorry, two concussions spaced out five days, which is full recovery. So they get concussed, they have a full metabolic recovery, and then they get hit again, and then they go through the same thing. There's no additive or cumulative effect. Okay, now in humans, it's a 22 to 30 day recovery, right? And now you know not to hate on the NFL, but let's take the NFL. Hmm. They, they play every seven days. It just so happens that the return to play protocol is seven days. Hmm. So <laughs> does, does the NFL or does sports in general, let's just use professional sports, amateur sports, everything. Do we have a concussion problem or do we have a concussion management problem? Hmm. Are we just, is all of this, is all of this crap? Is all of this just due to in, inappropriate management, letting players play too soon? Mm-hmm. Kind of seems that way, huh? 
Yeah, and, and even like you, what you said before, a lot of the symptoms that we associate with like, um, like concussions and PCS and all that, um, are we are we manufacturing them because of the way that we're managing concussions? There you go. Like because we're sticking people in dark rooms for during that first seven days to fourteen days. Like, are, are we just the whole process of the way that we manage it now? Are we just exacerbating everything? Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I'm just grabbing a water here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> getting, getting parks. I'm getting too animated here. 